Welcome to Man on a Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today we are doing Wenger. Here we could be here a while, I'm not going to lie to you on that one. I think when you... you can't really grade Wenger. We, we know that we're getting to the end point and that, you know, the best years are, pr are probably long gone. But I don't think you can come out and say, OK, we'll take 1996 to the present day and come up with a, with a grade. Because it's just such a long period of time. It covers so many different things and so many eras. And so much has changed that in the end you're only ever going to have to give him a great grade. Because no matter which way you want to put it, he's still won a load of FA Cups. He's won the double. He's won double twice. He's, he's got to the Champions League final, to the UEFA Cup final. That's just... You know, you've had so much success, They've so much has happened, you're going to end up having to give him really an A grade. Which doesn't really... which works in its own way, but it doesn't tell the whole story. Because if you give him a B+, plus, then, then you're being churlish on some level. But at the same time, if you give him just a straight A, that doesn't fully explain it either. There's, he's made many mistakes, and in the end, I think you, you have to just try and really explain how he's got to where he is today and then try and split the different Arsene Wenger eras into something more manageable where you really can sort of look into you know what he was good at what he was bad at and the circumstances behind that i think if if there's because there's so few coaches that spend so much time at a club and you know, kind of skate eras it becomes really difficult to sort of explain why. I mean, compare him to Ferguson. In other words, Ferguson, everything goes right for Fergie. We, we'll, t we'll talk about this in another podcast, but in the simplest terms of it, Ferguson turns up, United are successful, they've got all the bits and pieces that you would need for things to go well. But it doesn't happen overnight. You know, the, the, the squad has a drinking problem, Liverpool are yeah, still at their peak. But he's saved by all these different factors. There's no European football. So in other words, it's not like all the other teams that are being successful at that sort of period. So you've got the Spurs, Everton, Liverpool. They're not winning European Cups. They're not. There's not as much of a pressure on United to be as successful as it would be if European football was still on the cards. You know, the infrastructure becomes... By the time, you know, Ferguson's got rid of the drinkers, the youth team players start coming through, the decline of Liverpool. Now, the, I think the, one of the funny things that always makes me laugh is that you know, Ferguson comes up to Man Manchester with the idea of knocking Liverpool off their perch. Brilliant idea and all the rest of it. But when you actually look at the decline of Liverpool, it's really nothing to do with Ferguson. Honestly, you know, the, the, there's so many other factors that were already in place so that by the time, sort of, the start of the, the you know, literally the start of the 90s, Liverpool are already declining, just as the time that Man United are starting to, to kick up. So everything sort of goes right for Ferguson. You know, it was just as he's about to be sacked. They go on this cup run. They could have easily lost that final to Palace. They don't. Then European football comes along. They win the Cup Winners' Cup in 91. By 92, they, they're winning the league. And everything just from that builds on. And the same thing really sort of happens to Arsenal. In other words, you don't... You end up... You know, you have to be, to a certain extent, lucky. You have to have that timing. You have to be the right person in the right position 
and then 20 years can happen. In other words, it doesn't happen to every manager because in most situations, you just don't have that luxury. You don't have the time or you don't have the place. It Things just happen, you know. And what what Wenger has is that he, he sort of his timing is perfect. In other words, the the great thing is when they talk when David Dean says that when they got rid of George Graham and they sort of had the interim for a little bit and they wanted a, a new manager. They originally wanted you know, Dean wanted Wenger. But the board, you know, he's coaching out in Japan, he's not well known here, and they sort of bottle it and they decide to go with Bruce Rioch. The thing is, Bruce Rooker is interesting because he's completely, basically completely forgotten. But he sort of comes into there and he decides he wants to, them to play better football. They, they, they've brought Dennis Burke out for 7.5 million, huge amount of money in sort of 1995. But he's still got the backbone of the, the Graham team. But he wants to improve training, the style of football, the preparation, professionalism. And he just, he comes against a huge amount of blowback from the senior players, you know, who've all got their own kind of issues and they've, they've been successful. They've just sort of dipped a little bit, but you could probably say that the whole Bungate thing with Graham, that would have an impact, but they're getting slightly older, but they're still, they've been successful recently. So they don't, it doesn't mesh. He, you know, Rioch ends up having a you know, poor relationship with Ian Wright. And although some of the ideas sort of, germinate but they don't flower it doesn't work because he doesn't really have the the profile or the mandate to change in other words they've just had george graham who was the architect of their success he's just some guy that took bolton up and as a result end of the, you know he ends up getting sacked and by this point dean is able to say well let's just go with arsene wenger the board say yes so that this is one of the things, when there's always ex-Arsenal players kind of say, oh, when Wenger turned up, he's this kind of tall, professorial-looking person. They've never heard of him. And they think, ah, he's going to last two weeks. But already, the changes that if he had come in straight off the bat after Graham and tried to do all of that, the players haven't had a successful season. So they're not really in the position to fight back against him. They're all a year older. And the football is slightly changing by this point even in that sort of 18 month period so they're more receptive they're more they want to listen and as a result you know they start getting better and it builds to the sort of 97 98 double and this is one of the things it, i think you have to remember a lot of the time is that it, it becomes very convenient for people to say ah wenger was the reason why english football came out of the dark ages and it's not really fully accurate because you, you've got, well, if you were going to say that, yeah, which foreign manager first started to change the Premier League, well, you'd really have to say Rude Hullet first. But it, it's not as convenient because, in the end, Rude Hullet doesn't have, has quite a short period at Chelsea. He wasn't really much to do with the Premier League because he only had one season there as a player, then became player manager. It, it doesn't... And then, obviously, the more success that they had after he left, because he left in quite, you know, awkward circumstances, was Luca Viali. And in the end, Neve, we don't really want to consider Hullet and Viali as being these sort of Svengalis and these important key changes in English football. Much in the same way that, you know, then you'd have to then start talking about Terry Venables in England. You'd then have to sort of say, well, the, the impact of someone like... Jürgen Klinsmann at Spurs when he turned up and said, well, you have to train like this. You, you can't just wear 
one set of training kit the whole day. You have to have one for the morning when you're doing that, you're running, and one for the afternoon. These bits and pieces that were already in process. In other words, I think that if, if Arsene Wenger had never set foot in this country, the football would have moved on. It was already moving in that direction. But he obviously, to an extent, supercharged it. And you have to respect that. And I can understand why people see him because he's been there for 20 years, because he's this totemic figure, rather than sort of Hullet, who, you know, flames out after he leaves Chelsea, ends up Newcastle doesn't work out. Same thing with Luca Viali, has this success at Chelsea, ends up at Watford, and it just goes horribly wrong. And it's, it's much more convenient, really, to put Wenger. And I can understand. But then the the flip side of it is he comes in at this perfect moment. But at the same time, I think because we've got to this point where that his his role is so important in Arsenal history is that we forget everything that happened beforehand. It's as if you know Arsene Wenger turned up and Arsenal were nowhere, and then everything else happened after that. It's just not really that accurate. He he pitches up and he's got right Burkamp, Merson, Young, Ray Parler. He's got the, the back five with, with a couple of other, with sort of two or three, four backup players to that back four. He's got David Seaman. He, there's, there's, a, you know, there's a fundamental backbone to that Arsenal team. They have underachieved a little bit, but even in the years before, they'd won the League Cup and the FA Cup in 93. They got to the Cup, they won the Cup Winners' Cup in 94. Finalists in 95. They'd nearly won the double in 91. This is only you know, autumn 96. It's not. Yeah, outside the reams of possibility. It was really regression to the mean. Those players were going to do better, and once they had a consistent leader and a good manager in Wenger, it got so much better. But then you, this is the problem, is that you then... You know, how much credit are you willing to give George Graham? In other words, now, you know, when Graham left Arsenal, he, he was this huge figure. They'd won leagues, they'd won cups, they had had all of this sort of consistent success... And they were just known. They'd had success in Europe and all the rest of it. And yet now he, he's almost insignificant. He seems just the past. And yet what he gave, what he left to Houston, who takes them you know, as, as part of the backroom staff, you know, as an interim, to the Cup Winners' Cup final in 95, where they lose to Naeem from the halfway line. I had to note that. Apologies to any Arsenal fans. Had to note that. And so, in the end, and the, the, the success they had in the late 90s is still based on a lot of the elements. Arsenal already had a willing mentality. They already had players that if you that were able to be future-proof when Wenger comes in and changes things. But it's still there. He still has to get credit. You can't just give it all to Arsene Wenger to an extent. In other words, the funny thing is with Bruce Rioch is if you compare him to, let's say, David Moyes at United, in other words, Bruce Rioch comes in, sees the squad, sees where it's going, and then tries to change it, but it fails. He has elements of success, but overall it fails, and that's why he's out of a job. And yet you get to Moyes, who tries to take over from a sort of totemic figure in Ferguson, doesn't really try and change anything, sort of wants to keep it going, wants to almost be continuity... I mean, he tried to take more of the backroom side of it, and yet had probably, you know, finished in the top seven, got into the Champions League quarterfinals, but your, how, you, how you remember and interpret Moyes, it, it's not positive. And yet, someone like, you know, Bruce Rock, whose changes and bits and pieces 
led Arsenal, you know, to the position where someone like Wenger could be successful. These people have to be noted, you know, even if it is a small footnote, but it can't all be Arsene Wenger. <laughs> you know, his longevity is because there was the elements there that would allow someone to then take it on. In the same way that Ferguson, when he goes there, there's talented players, they've had some success under Ron Atkinson, but that what they really need is someone who can tie everything together and then, you know, really push them on in a way that, you know, both of them did. And that's, it's, that has to be noted. And I think this is the, you know, and we're going to sort of move on now to really trying to split up Ferguson. I, 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 sorry, Wenger. I see Arsene Wenger as being sort of three different people. You've got Wenger the manager, Wenger the manager and general manager, like director of football, if you will. And then you've got Arsene Wenger, manager, general manager, de facto owner and CEO. So really, for me, my favourite, and I, to my opinion, the best Arsene Wenger, is Arsene Wenger, the manager. He basically comes into this job in 96, he's got the strong base, and he's got a big, relatively big budget, he's got knowledge, and he's got all of the bits and pieces that you need to really kick on. In other words, he has this knowledge of French football and you know, the European football to an extent that just no other Premier League manager had at that time. Not even Ferguson really had that. You know, where Ferguson's transfer expertise at that sort of period was Scandinavia. But that's because Scandinavia at that time had was just going for a great footballing spell. You had Norway get to sort of three or four ranked in the world. They qualified for World Cup 94 in front of England and the Dutch. You had Sweden, who'd finished third at 94, and they had a bunch of great players. And Denmark had won in, you know, the Euros in 92. So that was quite easy, you know, that was slim, yeah, yeah, they were good, there was lots of pickings there. In other words, they were, they could speak English, they knew the conditions, and it wasn't too difficult for them to settle in. But obviously, that's, eventually, that declined, and that's one of the things that, when you, if you ever talk about... Ferguson is how he was able to adapt to that but for Wenger he's got this great knowledge of French football if you ever want to compare knowledge of French football is that you get Hullier who was the manager who also then of when they failed to qualify for 94 he was also the technical director of Clairefontaine in other words he was the establishment expert and yet when he goes to Liverpool and when he spends a few years there the young French players he buys don't work out because they're all the people that all the players that they expect to succeed. Uh, there was two Liverpool players they signed: uh, Anthony Latalak and Florence Cinema Pongo. Highly rated, and that was at the time when French football was at its kind of international peak zenith, where everyone thought that Clairefontaine was just the mecca for youth development. And both of them, I mean, Cinema Pongo had some levels of success, but not much. You know, he did well, all right at Blackburn, had a sort of bit of a peripatetic career. And then you've got Latalak, who had a tiny bit of success at Sunderland after he leaves Liverpool. Neither of those players were very successful at Liverpool. And yet then you have Wenger, who's the outsider, someone who spent a few years in Japan, but he's done a lot of commentating on French football. When he turns up in, 95, in 96, he immediately knows who to get. So he gets, you know, Emmanuel Petit, who was, ironically enough, Supposed to sign for Spurs, they kind of eh, umanare it, give him the taxi money, goes to Highbury, signs. You look at Pitti on his, just on his own. He's a solid player, but he's not 
you know, you could under, sort of understand why Spurs at the time didn't sign him. It still was a mistake, but you could understand that, you know, didn't score a huge amount of goals. You know, wasn't the, you know, didn't look to be the strongest sort of box-to-box player. But he's perfect next to Vieira. So he signs Vieira for four and a half million pounds. Now at the time, Vieira was at AC Milan. They signed him as a very young teenager directly out of France. And that was at the time when there was no reserve football in Italian, in Italy. So in other words, you had the, the sort of AC Milan star-studded squad, and that was it. You just trained, you had the odd friendlies. So as a result, there wasn't really much way of, of him getting into that Milan team, especially because in his position, that was when they were playing Marcel Desailly as a defensive midfielder. They had Maldini, they just had about everything that you could want in his the positions where he could have broken in. So he made about two sub-appearances. But he, at the same time, he's still 19. He hasn't had virtually no first-team football. Especially, and, you know, n- no way of impressing people outside of someone like Wenger who knows him. So he signs him for about £4.5 million, which you think, for 96, 97, is a huge amount of money. Spurs in 95, 96 signed Chris Armstrong for £4.5 million. That's record signing. No other manager. You know, you think, well, could Jerry Francis have made that move? Do you think uh, Brian Little at Villa... Kevin Keegan, who at that time would have had been able to persuade their board to sign from AC Milan a gangly French midfielder who'd virtually never played, who no one would have heard of, who hadn't played for France at international level. It would have been a stretch. And also to then develop that player, turn him into a leader and you know get him into English football in the mid-90s. That's a hard ask. I, I can't imagine Ron Atkinson at Coventry. You, know, you just name a team... It just isn't likely. It was a different era. But he's the one who knows that. He then, you know, basically knows enough about the you know, Paris Saint-Germain youth system to know that Nicolas Anelka is this gifted player. He's also pissed off the entire of you know, PSG to the point where actually they just want to get rid of him and they'll happily let you know. And so they picked him up for 750 grand. Now, which manager at that time would have had the knowledge and also the ability to say to their chairman can you spend 750 grand on this virtually somewhat unknown difficult moody french teenager we're going to bring him over and at coventry it's unlikely you're unlikely to get your board and to get the fans behind it but wenger does and you know obviously petit Vieira, and elka they all explode they're all fantastic and so he has this inbuilt advantage, which now, and this is one of the things about being, you know, the, the forerunner, is that now everybody has that knowledge. It's just, you know, he had for a few years the ability to be ahead of his time in terms of sports science, in terms of, to an extent, tactics and application. And he already had this base that George Graham has built and the sort of tweaks that, you know, uh, that Bruce Riot puts in. But the thing is, this is what people forget because it's been so many years. Is that they had terrible discipline for the first five years. They were frequently the top of the Premier League in terms of red cards, yellow cards, fouls, and all the rest of it. But people forget that. And they forget at the time that Wenger just didn't care. As far as he was concerned, it didn't matter how many times Patrick Vieira got sent off. As long as Arsenal were winning, it didn't bother him. They were the victims. It was everybody else that was targeting them or whatever. And yet you think about what Wenger is now, talking about tackles and discipline, it, it, 
it's it's so funny just how hypocritical you can be is it if you were the man, dirtiest manager for five years you know in the late 90s and now actually you're the dean of you know fairness and don't want you know huge tackles we don't want it turning into rugby and all the rest of it but the funny thing is is those things get resolved in other words he has this strong back four that he inherits you know, he's got this discipline, that this nasty streak that Arsenal then get results. He then he also buys players to win. And it the thing is, when we think of Wenger now, we think of him as very intelligent and all the rest of it. But it's actually quite funny, is that basically in the late nineties, they're doing well, but they're not they're fully kicked on. So he just goes out and spends seven million on Mark Overmars from Ajax. Everyone in the world in about 97, 19, knew Mark Overmars was a brilliant player. You know, he'd done so well for the Dutch team. He'd done well for Ajax when they won the Champions League. Everyone in the world knew how good he was. He'd been linked with United since pretty much 96 onwards. And he just signs him because he knows that that will get him where he needs to go. Can you imagine now Wenger in a January transfer window going, well, we're a player short of the league. I'll just go out and sign the best possible player that I have available and we'll just go from there. In other words, it's not super-duper intelligent. It's a move anyone who had a fantasy football team in 1998 would have done. But he does it. They then go on, they win the double, and kick on. But the thing about early Wenger is, so he, there is this, he's just the manager. He takes the money that he's been given by the board, buys the players, he's got the advantage, and he kicks on, and he starts competing with United on a yearly basis. There's the bits and pieces that see that, that, that sort of show the future are sort of coming out. In other words, his teams are naturally, you know, his early teams are crescendo teams. So in other words, they build for a year, they peak, but then the wave crashes down and they go back again. Now that's why his teams never win back-to-back leagues. It's always everything goes right, as in 97-98, when they just clicked around about sort of February, March, went on this insane unbeaten run. By that time, they you know got to the final of the cup, won the league, league and cup double. But then the next year they don't win the league, and it's the same thing you have with the you know the Invincibles and the other double winning team. They don't kick on the next year, but you know at the same time you have to remember that they were playing a brilliant United team. But and really, when you then get to the sort of Invincibles, it's peak Wenger football and Arsenal football. They play this brilliant thing, win you know break the record of most undefeated games, win the league. And I've, I've always mentioned this, and it, it's churlish, it's classic Spurs fan thing, that, yeah, they, they didn't win the, the FA Cup, didn't win the Carling Cup, you know, didn't win the, the League Cup, got knocked out by Chelsea in, at home in the quarters of the Champions League, but that's, that's still, that's still a, a fantastic achievement. But by this point, he's not quite peak manager. That's probably a couple of years earlier. Because, essentially, the... This, as as the years go on, as you get to sort of two thousand one, two thousand two, the the basis, the bits that Wenger and you know, obviously Rioch and all the and you know Arsenal start to change. In other words, that team then starts becoming pure Wenger. He's still manager. He's still got David Dean. He's still got all the rest of you know Pat Rice, the backroom staff. They're all still there, and he's still manager. But it's as as you know as once the turn of the millennium things are starting to change. So you know, Seaman, Dixon, Keown, Adams, Winterman, they're starting to age. They're not the they're not the now. They're not they're declining. So the the next players he's going to buy, the next team he's going to create, 
is going to be basically purely Wenger. And this is where some of the weaknesses are starting to surface. So in other words, he buys Lauren, 7.8 million, as a midfielder. It doesn't work out, and he sort of gets shoehorned into right back, and it works, but it's not what he planned. And, you know, Lauren was a, ended up being a great right back. But that wasn't really the plan. And that's 7.8 million pounds. That's a huge amount of money back in the early 2000s to spend on a right back. And then you get Will Todd. You know, thirteen million pound striker, gonna score the goals up front with Omri. It doesn't really work. He ends up becoming a great role player, but at the same time, it's still a thirteen million pound role player who ends up playing a bit up front, a little bit out on the the right, a bit on the left. But it, it's still a huge amount of money, and he then you know his sort of failure to develop British players start to come to fall. In other words, he kind of turns up, and you know they have they signed Matthew Opson pretty early on in his um, managerial career or at Arsenal. From Luton, he already had Hartson, who they signed in '95. They then spent a load of money on Richard Wright, had a load of money on Francis Jeffers, and none of those really work out. In other words, Matthew Upson has a great career, a pretty solid career, ends up with a load of England caps. And it's always that point when Arsenal had weak centre halves like Eagle Stepanovs, if you're going to remember the name, and yet you always had someone like Matthew Upson, who would have been probably, he wouldn't have been maybe a starter, but he would have been a great sort of. A sort of player that a team like Arsenal, if they were aping Man United, would have had. Someone who would have maybe stayed 10 years there, maybe played 200 times, and just been someone that they could fit in. And, you know, in other words, so they didn't have to spend money on other centre-halves, and you wouldn't have ended up with um, uh, someone like um, uh, Luzny, you know, or, oh, this is my favourite one, the Pascal Seagon. Yeah, you know, all of those sort of dodgy two thousand buys that were always sort of shoehorned in. He would have been a great player to have had as a backup to Sol Campbell. And then you get Richard Wright, who it just didn't quite work out. In other words, I think with Richard Wright, if they had, he should have left Ipswich probably about after two years. He spent about five six years there, and those five six years in the Championship just didn't. He didn't kick on developmentally. So by the time he gets to a big club at Arsenal. He and he then had to replace Seaman, which was always going to be a really tough ask. He just didn't quite have it. He then ended up having a decent, you know, career after that with Everton. Went back to Ipswich, but at this point, you can see where some of these elements that are now affecting Arsenal now start to kick in. You know, but they're still the Invincibles. They still had this brilliant team. They still scored a load of goals. But at this point, that's really the, the peak. But then this is, this is one of the things I love, when you see a team that peaks, and then they just start to decline. In other words, you start to see that, you know, yeah, Vieira's ageing, Henri's ageing. They're still great, they're still nothing. But you can see that they're just not quite the same level. They've ended up having to sort of shoehorn in Jens Lehmann. And Lehmann was brilliant, but he always had that fundamental weakness that you knew that in a big game... He could make a mistake or he could lose it and then lose Arsenal a game. And it, that happens in the Champions League final. But that's one of the things. When a team weakens just ever so slightly and they sort of realise it. They realise it that that team's coming to the end and that eventually things will have to change. And so they go on this kind of one last crack at it. It's a bit like the, the Chelsea team that won the Champions League. They realise that no, they weren't all going to stay at Chelsea forever. They were all ageing. There was going to be a new manager coming in. So they just gather out and fight. And it's never quite as good as the football they played before. 
but it's usually in a cup competition effective, which is what, what Chelsea do. They, they smash in the second leg. Napoli in a kind of old school, you know, just up and at them. And then for the rest of their time, they were kind of tight defensively battling and they would just nick it and do just enough to get through. Much in the same way at Arsenal. In other words, you know, they, they, they didn't concede many goals. They became tight at the back, which wasn't, you know, typical of Arsenal at, of that era. They then just start nicking things on the break and they get to the final and it's, you know, you have to give them credit. But it wasn't the best football that Arsenal fans have ever seen, but it was effective. And then they lose this, you know, the final in you know heartbreaking fashion. And so, but you've still got these countervailing influences. You've still got David Dean, who, who plays a huge role. He's the one that helps push Wenger into signing uh, Gilberto Silva. You've still got Paris. You've got this phalanx of senior pros. So Gilberto Silva's won, you know, stuff with Brazil. Vieira, Henri. You've got all of these key players, even Campbell to an extent, who you know are able to essentially take what Wenger is sort of tactical ideas and style of football, and it and apply it in a way that's successful because they've won things. But then, at this point, you know, it's suddenly starting to change because then you're leaving Highbury, at which point they've then got a little bit sick of Henri, and they know that eventually they're going to have to let him go. Vieira decides to, you know, further his career on in in Italy. And then you suddenly now start to get into Wenger as manager and GM. Yeah, I'd say maybe 2006-2007 is when the move to the Emirates happens and they've been basically said, well, we're going to have to keep it financially tight while we pay off the stadium. And the knowledge that, you know, sooner rather than later, the Vieira is the Omri's and the next great Arsenal team. And he has this sort of Almost like a, what's the best way of putting it? He has a window, an opportunity to build that next Arsenal team because you know they've now moved into the stadium and the fans are aware that they, things are going to be slightly different and that they're not going to be able to spend in the way they did in the late nineties, early two thousands. They're still going to spend, but just not in the same way. You know, you're starting to get to the point where we're talking about transfer windows and bits and pieces like that, whereby Wenger, when he first turns up there, if in May, sorry, if in February you need someone, you just bought someone, you know, no questions asked. But then this is always then, you've then got these, sort of the, the super clubs, so you then have billionaires, Mourinho, and it all starts to suddenly, it impacts Wenger more than it impacts someone like Ferguson. You would think... It would have affected Ferguson more because he was the kind of alpha male and his team was the alpha team. And they don't have the sort of financial advantages that they had in the 90s and dominance vanish really quickly. <laughs> and uh, this was at the time when, you know, it wasn't, there was no guarantee that Ferguson was going to stay on. Especially if he wasn't winning every single year. There was a specter that, well, would he retire or, or the rest of it? And then he would then have to build whereby when he wasn't necessarily at his peak, the world was changing really rapidly. But he seems to react relatively well. He has a cu- they have a couple of down years, but he slowly but surely starts building the pieces up, and by you know the mid-2000s, they're already at the door. <laughs> they're already hammering at the door. They end up having this success. Wenger, on the other hand, seems to... <laughs> he seems to start changing. In other words, he starts spending a lot more money on younger players. There's less seniority. In other words, his power seems to be more. He seems to be more of a figurehead. 
He's not just the manager. He's now the manager that built the stadium and is going to have to take Arsenal through the first, these straightened times, through, you know, the stadium that he's built. And yet, he then, be, so he starts becoming more long-term. He's almost thinking a little bit like a, a general manager. In other words, hey, if I buy four or five players, so in other words, he built, bought players like Denilson. You know, he started paying, showing probably a lot more attention to the youth system. And he's, he's a bit more cautious with the money. And just, and then he starts, you know, I don't want to say sanctimonious, but then he, you know, he starts complaining about you know, oh, modern football and bits and pieces about that. And so he just becomes slightly more, almost a little bit more sort of isolated. He, in other words, he almost wants to win in a certain way. In other words, when they, they nearly won the title, I think it's 07, 08. Yet they're trying to win with Manuel Munia. Who's just this bizarre signing? It just—he was early twenties, but he was playing in the Segunda League, I believe, for the feeder team to a mid-table La Liga team. So, in other words, he's not had any experience in England. He hasn't really had much top-level experience in the Liga, and so he just signs this random keeper, and then pushes him. You know, in effect, over-promotes him massively to the point where he's now the the keeper that they're trying to rely on to win the league. They they were still spending money. They weren't, you know. They were certainly they weren't, you know, breaking even. And yet they just wouldn't sign the keeper. And then he makes some you know little mistakes. Like you know he gives gives a, he makes these little mistakes. And then you end up with you know Fabianski, who they spent years trying to develop. And just as he sort of developed into something maybe a slightly above average keeper, his contracts run out and he leaves. And so actually Swansea the one who benefits. But you think, well, where do you put Fabianski right now? I would say he's a slightly above average goalkeeper. Maybe between 12th and 8th in terms of the best keepers in the Premier League. But that wasn't really worth five years of him being at Arsenal, playing some big games and making some big mistakes. The same way that in the end, Almunia just tops out at best as a league average Premier League keeper. But he never gets any better. It was He was never young enough so that, you know, if he did get better, he never did. He ends up at Watford, and you just think, well, that was just so much treasure that you've and time that you've used badly. You've, neither one of those keepers developed. The, what, the better what keeper they end up developing is Chesney, and even then, it still doesn't quite work out. And he's still on the books. He, you know, he's had eighteen months on loan at Roma, and they still haven't really worked out now what to do with him. And yet, they've been trying to get him to be the Arsenal number one, and he has those three or four years where he's. Great at times, inconsistent at others, but just doesn't really develop. And yet, and then he, you end up then just again shoehorning in Petr Cech and you know, David Ospina. But you know, you know, you just you know, Cech's done well at Arsenal, but he's not been great. He's not the Cech that he was at Chelsea. He's just a stopgap option. And yet there's still no further to you know solving it. They, you know, they they bring in Ospina, they've given him a run, but he was, you know, small, you know, small-ish. And he was you know, relatively inexperienced. You know, he played in you know, mid-table French team. He'd had some success at the World Cup, but he wasn't, you know, it was unlikely that he was going to kick on and become a world-class goalkeeper at 30. So they still haven't really solved that issue, and yet Look at all the other teams. You know, you've had Spurs that, you know, signed a couple of kind of holdout keepers, you know, 
in Friedel, but Friedel did really well. And they knew that he, because they knew they could only really realistically get a couple of years, they then signed Larice. Larice has now just been absolutely, you know, nails for the last five, six seasons. And yet, Arsenal could have signed him. There's no other way around it. He would have, if you gave him the choice, do you want to join Spurs, who, are, you know, haven't qualified for the Champions League that often, you know, facilities aren't as good. Well, of course he would have probably signed for Arsenal. But then, you know, Wenger sort of hesitates. And, you know, that's the whole thing. The whole point from about 2000 on, 2010 onwards, all you ever really hear from Wenger is, oh yeah, I nearly signed him, but it just didn't make over the line. Whereby 1997, 98, 99, 2000 Wenger never says that. Even if he was linked with someone, he wouldn't have come out in a press conference and said, I nearly got him, but... Ah. Especially when his transfer policy hasn't quite worked. It's like he tries to win the league at one point you know, with these dodgy goalkeepers. And he's got Sol Campbell, who he's just signed on a freebie because you know, Sol Campbell decided he didn't want to play for Port... What was it? Oh, Notts County. And he get, ends up signing Mikel Silvestre as if he really, at this point, almost as if he wants to win the league with an unheralded goalkeeper, the patched up, you know, remnants of Sol Campbell and Mikel Silvestre, who they've just sort of, they've got originally on loan from Man United. In other words, it's almost as if the only way that he wants to win is to play this open brand of football with these kind of cast-off players. Because then it'd be like, I've won the league on this sort of smaller budget and with these sort of players who nobody else would want. That's my greatest success. But then it, it's self-defeating. It's not like the Wenger of the 2000s, whose team, if they were dirty, so be it, if we win the league. Or... I'll just go out and sign someone. It won't be spec, you know. It, no one's going to call me a genius for signing Mark Overmars, but if it works, who cares? It's that sort of thing. He starts to become a little bit more sensitive. He's more isolated. You know, Dean leaves sort of about two thousand six, two thousand seven. In other words, the problems is is that when you start criticizing Arsenal in these kind of the first four or five years of the Emirates. You're not only criticising Arsene Wenger as the manager who picks the team and the tactics and deals with the subs, you're also having a go at Arsene Wenger, the general manager, who's the one who's buying the players. He's the one who's deciding how the squad is built year after year after year. He's the one who gives Mikel Silvestre two or three years at Arsenal. He's the one that keeps faith in Almunia. And so is a, this is the thing. In other words, if you split those t the roles up, in other words, Arsene Wenger could have a go at the general manager saying, well, actually, I didn't want Manuel Armunia. If we'd had a great goalkeeper, we'd have won in 2007, 2008. But he can't do that. Or if, you know, Arsene Wenger just steps up, up to the general manager's role and then just hires a younger coach to then mould it, you can say, well, actually, I've given you this squad that's more than talented you, the young coach, haven't kicked on. But he can't do that. And it's only, you know, really going to get worse. So, in other words, because his role has become so centralised, because there's nobody else at Arsenal with the sort of personality level, because by this point, Omri's gone. Vieira's gone. All of the remnants of the back four are gone. In the end, you've got Pat Rice. But Pat Rice is, is an important role, but he's not the person that does interviews. He doesn't have that kind of standing that someone like a Bobby Charlton has, who can basically, you know, say to Ferguson things that 
you know, Ferguson doesn't want to hear. <laughs> I, th I think it's, it's always very interesting. I think this is one of the things that I always find fascinating, is that no matter how successful Ferguson is at United, no matter how many years, no matter how many trophies he wins, there's always Sir Bobby Charlton up in the stands watching he's got this kind of huge it's kind of this sort of weirdly undefined role he's just like the father of the football club he, he's on the board but he, it's, you don't know what he decisions he makes on a day-to-day -day basis but just him being there in the stands and the camera panning to him says to Ferguson and to the, everybody else is that there was a United before Alex Ferguson pitched up and that there will be in effect a United after Ferguson leaves yeah, that really, that you're never going to, in some respects, ever top, you know, Wembley 68 when they beat Benfica with Bobby and Georgie Best and the swinging 60s. But there's never anyone like that at Arsenal. There's not a George Graham up in the stand to say, well, actually, George Graham had a better defence than Wenger, or George Graham was slightly more successful in Europe, or was better at developing it. There isn't that kind of character. Once Dean leaves, there's no one really telling him what to do. In other words, his decision-making is entirely his own, and there's no one really to stop him. So in other words, it starts becoming long-term. It becomes jam tomorrow. Oh, it's always, the, it's always the player that does well at the Emirates Cup that is the future. And most of those players don't quite make it. But at the, the, the same time, even though he's talking about this sort of fiscal... Pre oh, I can't spend the same amount of money as... Fergie, I can't spend the same amount of money as Jose Mourinho because of Abramovich. The wage bill is astronomical. The squad size is at one point, I think they had 73 professionals on the books. You, you can't sit there and say, well, I have no money. And yet you've got this huge squad, a lot of them who are just never going to play, who just stagnate. They don't really go anywhere, which then sort of leads to the sort of the real tragedy is when you, know, you have the Cronkite takeover. In other words... Basically, Kronk comes in and says, well, I'm investing, however, I'm here, I'm here for the 10%. I will turn up to, you know, the general meeting, nothing much else. As long as I'm making my 10%, I'm happy with the, the state of the club. Which then, by not turning up, by not having any kind of relationship with Arsenal fans, fan groups and all the rest of it, then really then just pushes Arsene Wenger to the stage, you know, where from, you know, maybe three or four years ago, where he's now, in effect, not just the manager. He's not the manager that has a budget that is given to him by David Dean, who helps with the signings and gives the sounding board where to, where he then ends up at the Emirates, where it's, okay, you've helped us build the Emirates. Can you now function a team that will keep us in the Champions League to keep the revenues high enough to pay off the stadium? At which point you get to sort of 13, where they've actually paid the stadium pretty much off. They're able to spend the money. They've got the money in the account. And now the, the, the owner comes in and says, do what you want. You're the, the, the basically the heart, the soul of this football club. You are the one in control. You can choose your own budget. You can choose your own chief executive. I'm not going to be here. I'm not really going to answer any questions. As long as you keep making the financial targets nails do whatever you want which then makes him the owner because it's not Gazidis Gazidis doesn't do that many interviews he's not you know a prime you don't know what he looks like which is the classic you know sign of someone who is not you know Arsenal fans don't have an ability to affect Gazidis it's just Wenger now 
and if you look at the times when someone has done that, it's someone like uh, Connie Mack in baseball. In other words, he basically played for the Philadelphia Athletics. He then became the manager. He then became the owner. And he, man owned, he managed them for about 25 years. At which point baseball went from sort of 1916 to the 40s. And there's just a humongous amount of change that happens in that time. And in the end, you know, whenever they have success, because there's you know, a lack of money and the way how he runs it, is he just gets, destroys any team that gets good, sells them all off, has a f few rough years, and then they go up again. To which point, they just they kills the fan base. And in the end, he just looks completely out of step in like 40s and 50s, because he's wearing a sort of 1916 suit when everybody else is just now wearing uniforms. The same thing sort of happens with Al Davis in, in football. He, you know, he becomes sort of, the, he was at one point literally like the, the general manager. He then becomes the owner and in some ways is doing a bit of coaching on the side. And so he has this tremendous sort of success in the 70s, but he's still doing it in the early 2000s when he's way past his sell-by date and his ideas are just out of step with modern thinking. They, the Oakland Raiders kept on just signing these athletes because his idea was football was about speed and power, yet they didn't have any of the actual skills necessary to be great at football, and they end up just failing. The coaching stuff gets constantly churned over, and in the end he was literally running the... the franchise into the ground it's not quite happened here with Wenger but it's the same principle in other words he has so much power and it's all him in other words you know any other football club you've almost got two or three people making decisions but now there's just Arsene he's the one that won all of these trophies he's the one that's built the Emirates he's the one that has kept all this level you know this consistent level of success he's the one who's produced Arsenal football Arsenal didn't used to be so, you know, florid and pretty and all the rest of it. There was always that hard-nailed part of Arsenal was winning. You know, 1-0 to the Arsenal. And so now he's got this massive blind spot. In other words, it can only be done how Arsene Wenger wants it to be done. So in other words, it, he gives these players who he believes in because he's the one that scouted them. He's the one that signed them. He's the one that's built their careers. In other words, any other manager would have probably, top-level manager, would have got rid of Theo Walcott. He just hasn't quite made it. He's had 10 years. If he was going to have made it, he would have made it by now, or he would have made more of himself. And yet, here we are, he's still playing, he's still, we haven't still quite decided whether he's a central striker or whether he's a winger. But if by selling him, that would then admit that the signing wasn't that he didn't, that the signing wasn't maybe right, that the way how Wenger's developed him wasn't right, and that the way how Wenger plays football hasn't got the best out of Theo Walcott, which then means that if he then goes somewhere else, let's say goes to Liverpool, for example, and starts smashing in the goals, that that would then be just basically a sign that Wenger hasn't done it. In other words, another bunch of English players he has signed for huge, relatively large amounts of money haven't worked. So you've got Callum Chambers, who just hasn't developed at all. You're still, we're all waiting on Oxlade Chamberlain. It's been four, five, nearly six seasons now, and he's still just promising. The same thing that people still talk about Walcott as this sort of promising player. And it's like, well, he's in his late 20s now. It, how long can you be, you know, 
promising before you start thinking, well, is it ever really going to kick on? But he won't make those decisions. He's still got Kieran Gibbs. He's still got, I can I never fully remember, uh, Jenkinson. You would have just sold him on and got as much money. You might have even pumped his value up. You said, oh, yeah, I think he can play for England. And then you wait and then you sell it. You flog him to West Ham for ridiculously large amounts of money and then buy someone better. But in the end, at some point, because his legacy now, everything is now to do with Arsene Wenger's legacy. So in other words, you know, in effect, it's become this vicious cycle whereby... You have to get to the group stages, out of the group stages of the Champions. You have to get into the top four to then validate everything else that's happened before that. So in other words, the, the money having to save to, to pay off the stadium and all the rest of it. Because if it at any point fails, it's just purely Arsene Wenger's fault. There's nobody else, really, that you can sort of blame as such because he's the one that's developed all these players. He's the one that's built the training ground, developed the youth system. He's the one who signs the players. He's the one who signs them to the contracts. In other words, every failure is Arsene Wenger's failure. Of course, every success becomes Arsene Wenger's, but that's not really a healthy way to have an organisation. The problem is, is that way, you know, Arsenal fans, in other words, because at some point, because he has so much power and he's unwilling to give up any of that power, that's why he can't really criticise Kroenke. In other words, a different manager, let's say who didn't have that level of power, would say, actually, look, I can take you to the top four, I can take you out of the Champions League group stages, but I can't take this outfit further on because there isn't the investment there. If only the manager would, you know, if only the owner would give me the money so I can buy a world-class goalkeeper or a world-class centre-half, then we could kick on. But the problem is, is that Wenger can't do that because then to say that then, you know, you'd have to then argue, well, we need a director of football. We need maybe a fully independent CEO, which then diminishes his power. And I don't think he wants to do that at this stage. So in other words, he can't really criticise Kroenke because Kroenke has given him everything a manager could ever want. You pure power. You decide when you go. You decide when you sign your contract extension. You, you have, you know, you're de facto CEO. You're the club spokesman. You know, I don't see any other manager having such an important role at AGMs than Arsene Wenger does. And that, that's telling, isn't it? <laughs> so in the end, it's become the point, it's like, what do they say in, the, in America? My country, right or wrong. It's Arsene Wenger, right or wrong. There is no... You know, so every sort of blind spot that he has becomes magnified. Because in other words, if he decides that he only wants to sign a old goalkeepers or extremely young goalkeepers... There's no one at the club to say, well, actually, why don't you get a keeper who's 27, who's at his peak, who can just immediately turn up and, you know, perform. Much in the same way you look at some of his signings. In other words, you look at, they spent 35 million on Xhaka. Now, Xhaka has a tremendous, he has a tremendous all-round game potential. He's got the shot. He can pass the ball. He's got some pace. He can go box to box. You know, he's shown leadership. You know, he's been a captain and he's had success at international football. He can tackle. He can do a couple, all these different things. So that's why they spend £35 million. Pounds. But there was risks. There were flags. He had the disciplinary problems. He'd never really played for a huge team under huge sort of media pressure. So as a result, you know, he's had some inconsistent playing time, but Wenger hasn't been fully confident in him. I know that there have always been these background rumblings that Wenger didn't necessarily want to sign him and felt pressured. You can't say yes or no to that question, but 
Then you look at someone like Spurs, they signed Wanyama. Yeah, there were some flags against Wanyama. He got sent off three times for Southampton, but you could sort of explain that away to an extent that he wanted to leave. He'd spent maybe one more year than he wanted to there and just sort of, you know, even subconsciously acted out. You know, that's not to say that what he did was stupid. It was. Some of those tackles were awful. But, and he didn't quite have the same reputation as Zaka. He didn't have the same ceiling, but since he's turned up for like, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15 million... He's just been plug and play. They've just put him in there. He's had a great season. He's been one of the players of the season. But he's cheap. He's done the job. And he's strengthened the team. But Arsenal don't have that. So they spent £20 million more and had none of the, the benefits. And you get someone like Gabriel, £15 million. And you know he's not really done it. But he was always going to be a difficult one. He played in Brazil. He played a couple of years out in Spain. He is always a difficult one to, as a defender, move, especially mid-season, to the Premier League and, you know, then get up to speed. But then if you look at what Spurs have done, they've signed out of the world. They just knew that he had the, the playing style because he had the year of Southampton. And now if you basically come up, if you're Arsenal or Spurs, if you're out of the world, you'd go with Arsenal. You can walk into the first team, you can be with Koscielny, who knows what sort of level of success they can have. But they don't, they dither, they don't make the move. Then they sign Gabriel, who's only a couple of years younger, but who's nowhere near as ready, and he hasn't quite worked out. You know, they more than often than not, they've thumped him at right back, and he just hasn't kicked on. And, you know, you then got Callum Chambers as well. And it's only now that they sort of signed uh, Shokrodan Mustafi in, in the summer, but it was almost a little bit too late. And then if you want to really go into the power. So in other words, you know, sort of, there's a lot more clarity with other managers. So in other words, when Pochettino pitches up, what he does is he immediately asks for a director of football. He's already got a you know, chairman in Daniel Levy who is very hands-on with transfers and all the rest of it. But it's almost as if, well, actually, we need more people. So we need three, you know, it's almost like a three-headed hydra. You need the chairman, the director of football, and me as the coach. And then we together will build this outfit and then try and kick on. So in other words, they get rid of all of the, these sort of players who would do well, who got the club good enough up to sort of fifth and challenging. And on, a, on a, if everything went well, would finish fourth. So they get rid of Livermore, Norton, Huddleston, those sort of players because they can get money for them, good money for them, and they haven't quite made it. Yet all of those sort of type of players are still at Arsenal. And this is where in the end, the, the, the sort of stasis element comes in. In other words, because everything is to do with the legacy and to keep Wenger, you know, to keep this his success up. In other words, it, be, finishing fourth in the top four, it, it's become a, the end rather than the means to an end. As a result, they can't, you know, whereby someone like a Chelsea can finish mid-table and then win the league the next year or they can finish sixth but win the Champions League, there isn't that kind of level of risk. Because in the end, the, the, the principle is, let's say if Wenger's position got weakened, then that would weaken the entire Arsenal because everything goes through him. In other words, the, the, the end point to this has been that really from about 2010 onwards, the longer that his reign has gone on, the more idiosyncratic it is. In other words, it becomes... The, the problem is Wenger. We know Wenger is the problem. 
because they keep having the same problem every year. They get knocked out by the first decent Champions League outfit. They're not even competitive in those games. They get hammered, or either away or at home. They then kind of have the gallant comeback, but it's always in vain. You know, they always end up doing quite... They always have that sort of rough spell around about just before Christmas. And then they have that sort of rough spell in sort of February. And then just at about a time when it's looking like they're not going to finish in the top four, but the pressure is off, they're not going to win the league. They then, you know, sweep, you know, sweep the rest of the season and finish second, third, fourth. And so in the end, the problem is that we know the problem. We know that they lose up north into those and they lose those games they shouldn't do they sometimes draw games that they shouldn't do and they have games where they fall apart against the bigger teams all of the and they're slightly callow they lack leadership and there's always a sort of patchwork quality to it. and when they collapse like when they lost 6-0 to Chelsea and when they lost 8-2 to United and they have these sort of panicked transfer windows where they just sign anyone just for bodies and then hope to you know, patch it up later instead of just signing people in the summer and you know, bedding them down. But the problem is, is that the more it becomes Wenger's team, club, everything else, the only solution to those problems is more Arsene Wenger because he's the only one who knows how to manage. Because there's basically no other manager in the Premier League who could do owner, general manager and manager all at the same time. If you look at someone like Ferguson, Ferguson always needed you know, a strong chairman, a strong chief executive. You know, he always had like a Peter Kenyon there. Someone who would help with that. He'd always have good assistant managers. You know, he'd have McLaren, he had Mullinson, he had Carlos Queiroz. Because in the end, as far as he was concerned, winning was, you know, at Manchester United winning meant that Ferguson won. So in other words, he was quite happy, you know, to share the power out. So that, yeah, while he was the figurehead and he was important, there was always other people that could help whereby Wenger has none of that. None of the old players have played a significant role. He's always kept them at, at arm's length. He's never allowed anyone, really. He, this is the thing. We all thought that sort of Ferguson was a dictatorial, dominant character, and it turns out, actually, he's more the, the business leader sort of type who delegates, who just does what he needs to do to get them successful and is reliant on the team, whereby Wenger is the more dictatorial one. He's the one that actually won't allow anybody else any sort of grum, crumb of power after Dean leaves and Pat Rice retires, it, you've got Steve Bold, who's just coached at the un, you know, uh, under-18 level for Arsenal. He's not managed anywhere else. He's not done anything that you know would allow him to basically have a power thing. So I think that someone told me the time when you know Bold gets up in the middle of the game to have a go at someone, and Arsene Wenger tells him to sit down, and he does. And it's that kind of interesting level in other words one of the reasons why they, they've had this situation where basically Arsene Wenger cannot really get the best out of those players because he can't get them to improve because he can't really improve himself in other words you cannot walk in at you know at day one of pre-season and say well, everything will change if you've decided as the general manager and the owner that you're going to keep the 80 million pound transfer money in you know the bank that you're going to give a load of contracts to players five years on big money who aren't you know who basically therefore have no need to actually kick on you can't then tell all those players to change because you're not changing and it's your club this is the thing the worst thing that can ever happen when you become like an owner 
or a general manager is if you... And this is one of the things that used to be said about Wenger four or five years ago by a lot of journalists was that, isn't it wonderful he doesn't spend all this money? He spends it like it's his own. That's not good. That means that you've got to the point of ownership where you're not necessarily thinking, oh, how do I get the best team? It's, actually, we could save money and we could still finish in the top four and then we'd still have the money. He's using it like it's his own. And that's not necessarily good. Someone like Harry Redknapp, who's a lot more straightforward, is like, he will basically just manage. He, he's not really that interested in director football. He did it at Portsmouth. But does anyone really believe he wanted to be a general manager? No, he just wanted to be a manager. And he will spend whatever you give him. If you, it doesn't matter if it ends up with the club in Portsmouth stage. That's not his problem. He is just the manager. And he will spend whatever it takes to get them to as high a level as he can. Because I suppose in his philosophy was the higher up you get the more money more crowds you get in the more tv money and hopefully then that keeps it going another year and yet Wenger doesn't really have that it's got to this sort of quite you can't expect the player to change because he is not advocating change himself his formations have got ever more predictable his playing style is only one way it's Wenger ball or nothing else which then means that so I remember when they, 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 everyone celebrated when they were just a bit tight at the back and beat a poor Man City away. Yeah, that was great, but it, 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 it's never really kicked on from that. They're still just playing the same formation in the same way. And really the difference is, is that by all of this power leaking into Arsene Wenger, is that the players aren't able to interpret it. In other words... Wenger ball is brilliant if it's interpreted by Dennis Bergkamp, Thierry Henry, Patrick Vieira, Sol Campbell and David Seaman. However, if you then try and interpret Wenger ball when you've got, you know, Walcott, Oxalade Chamberlain, you know, some callow defenders, even someone like um, Sanchez. Sanchez is a brilliant player, but he's a singular player. He plays his way of playing football and... You know, really, he he just almost it's almost if he wants to win the game on his own, which is you know admirable. And you know his attitude probably out of all of those players is the one that is most correlated towards winning. And you've got someone like Ozil, who, in effect, I I think Wenger. Well, part of the reason why Ozil loves Wenger is that he's under no pressure. Wenger just says, "Go out and play your natural game." He's not putting Ozil under pressure. Someone like. Mourinho does. I remember there's a story in Ozil's book where he just basically says, Mourinho walks in and says, you've not done enough. You just think a couple of pretty passes covers you. You need to work harder. You need to be more involved. You need to get, you know, get goals and get, make assists. And in the end, sort of basically, Ozil strops off into the shower and throws his jersey at Mourinho. You've not, he's not under that pressure at Arsenal, which means he plays very much his own brand of football which meant that neither of those two players, even though they spent huge amounts of money on them, have made the players around them better. In other words, neither of those players have managed to basically get 20 goals a season for... for Giroud. And yet, if you look at you know, a team like United, they managed to get the, the surrounding cast to get loads of goals from Andy Cole. Now... This is an interesting thing. Who do you think is a better player, Andy Cole or Giroud? Giroud's had a lot more success at international level. I think Andy Cole probably had a, a lot better success at domestic level. But then the teams that you know Andy Cole was at his peak was surrounded by, 
was Newcastle with Beardsley, Rob Lee and all those players played very attacking, who played through Andy Cole and everything was built up for Andy Cole to score goals. Same thing happened really at United. There was Yorkie, Eric Cantona, Teddy Sheringham, they had Giggs, Beckham, Skulls, Keane. All of those players were able to basically get the best out of Andy Cole. When Andy Cole stepped up a level to international level, wasn't the same player. Yet none of those none of those influences at Arsenal. In other words, no matter how many sort of players you surround Walcott, he doesn't seem to be able to kick on to the next level. Giroud has improved, but it doesn't seem to have improved because of the players around him. Surely someone as good as Meza Ozil should have been able to put enough chances on the deck for Giroud to score 20, 25 goals, which then pushes you, you know, into the stage where you're nearly winning the league. But it doesn't happen. The system hasn't ever quite work. The, the resource that Arsene Wenger uses, it's a bit stale. It does seem that, you know, Alexis Sanchez is doing it on his own, almost completely off script. So, we're sort of getting to the point now where, that's the conclusion really, I, I've, I've done, a, you know, in this sort of podcast, I've criticised Wenger in a lot of different ways. I still think, on when you look at it, he has been a asset to English football. He has done lots of brilliant things for English football. It's it's not all bad. You know, it still every year them pulling it out of the hat, winning the FA Cup as much, getting to European finals. It's fantastic. Some of the football they have played has been fantastic. Some of the players he's brought into English football have been fantastic. When he leaves, he will leave a giant of the game. And a giant of Arsenal. You know, I, I just prefer Wenger the manager. I think he was a better manager. He was more complex. He was more driven. He was more of a winner. I understand Arsene, Arsene the GM and manager, did things under tight pressure when there was you know, every instance where he could have left for a bigger club and taken the easier role. And, you know, having done well enough so that they did build that stadium and that he managed to keep them going, that he nearly sort of won the league with some ragtag players. But with each step along the line, it, he became more powerful and more of his weaknesses and strengths became Arsenal's weakness and strength to the point where you've now got him as the soul. He's alpha and omega of Arsenal. It's as if, you know, we, we've just completely forgotten the pre- you know, it's almost, you know, the, the way how I would look at it is is that fever pitch just seems to have happened to a different club. George Graham and, you know, 1-0 to the Arsenal and that back four that conceded, like, 46, was it 14 goals in 42 league games seemed to happen to someone else. And that now all you have is you just have the Emirates. You just have, you know have to finish in the top four you have to you know get out of the group stages to keep it going because the longer he keeps it going there's always that chance that it'll be jammed tomorrow that some young player is going to come up or that everything's going to kick together as the other great Arsenal teams under Wenger did and they would then just sweep it but with each sort of passing year it becomes less likely in other words his transfer weaknesses seem to be magnified you know he seems to be more you know, just doesn't seem to have that sort of clinical cutting edge. But at the same time, he's still been, in effect, left on his own. In other words, 
you know, Gazidis, Crunky, Sir Chips Keswick, they've all quite happily left it to him. And as a result, he's had to face the Arsenal fans on his own and has had to do it all. But in the end, it, that's why it can't really end that well because in the end he's got to the point where he is his own judge, jury and executioner. He, you know, It's no longer the Arsenal fans' choice. In other words, they have to protest and try and get rid of a club legend, which it should never be that way. There should be, you can never have a situation where one person becomes a football club. It, that's not... I, I, I have sympathy for Arsenal fans because in the end they've had to basically deal with this legend that in some way, shape or form has just, the legend has become itself. It's become a parody in some respects. In other words, it's become a little bit like an extended Monty Python sketch, and it just like you know, it's almost like the soldier, the you know, the, the Black Knight. It just things keep falling off, but it's just the same thing being told year after year after year. And at some point, you know, either Wenger had could have two or three years ago decentralised some of his power and then allowed somebody else to take some of the load off and, you know, allow him to... Because no one can be omnipotent. You, you cannot have a situation where Arsene Wenger is the one who div div deals with the youth structure, deals with the training end, deals with the AGM, deals with the stadium, deals with the budget, deals with the press and everything else. I, I don't think that's a logical thing. There's this one story that I always tend to tell people where it's basically middle of the summer and Arsene Wenger is in the training ground every single day and the only other person there is the groundskeeper who's just mowing the lawn and it's just like, well, you, that's an obsession that just isn't healthy. It's one of the things that I always, you end up, no matter how, what you've personally felt about Sir Alex Ferguson, there was always that part of his personality that meant that you knew that it wasn't always football. He could enjoy the GGs, even if, okay, he ends up owning part of Rock and Gibraltar, who has insane success, but that's something else. He would go watch, you know, the Ryder Cup. He would do other bits and pieces, and that he got the feeling that he would take his wife out once in a while on the holiday. And it's like, Wenger, there's always the thing, like, I can't remember the last time I took my wife out. And it's just like, well, at some level... You know, it's like they, they always say about Arsene Wenger that he doesn't have any other interest, that, you know, he will just be a football manager forever. And yet, the same time as Ferguson is able to retire on his own terms and then do his own things. So he has his, you know, he's written books, he's done lecturing, does speeches, and has this kind of sort of semi important role as a club ambassador. And it seems to have, he ended his career a lot happier than I think Wenger will. It's like, well, it's, I think the, the ultimate thing that I found interesting and telling was is that he's got this contract extension that he, and only he, can decide when he signs it. And yet he then comes out. And because this is someone who's been Arsenal and has done everything, as I've just sort of said, is that his statement was, well, yeah, I, I'll be a football manager. It doesn't have to be at Arsenal. <laughs> it's like, well, you, you know, for someone who's basically got this sort of kind of huge centralisation of power and almost dictatorial role... At the same time, it's like, well, actually, if, if it push comes to shove, I will just, you know, I'll build this, you know, shibboleth and just leave if it doesn't suit me. It, it, that is, that's, that's telling at some point. So I'm, I'm going to end really with this, um, 
with this metaphor, you see, I always see sort of Wenger as, and his sort of structures as being a bit like classical music. So you have these rules, the forms, the structures, and it can only, and to get the critical response and the response of the audience, you have to do it in a certain way. So you have to have a certain amount of acts, certain sensibilities and all the rest of it. So in other words, it's very niche. You have to really like and understand the baseline of it, which is why it's not really popular as such. And it can be beautiful and wonderful, but it's peaks and troughs and all the rest of it. Whereby someone like Ferguson, and the way how he integrates with the audience as the fans and Man United, he's Bruce Springsteen. In other words, Bruce Springsteen has done a million different albums in a million different sort of styles, but they're all Bruce Springsteen. They're Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. It's and the way how he tours. I mean, Joe Podstansky, the American sports writer, has, has written about it a lot. And the way how he says it is that he's seen it maybe like 50 times. And yet every single night, no matter where in the country, no matter how far along the tour has gone, he does, you know, born in the USA with the same fervour and intensity as if it's the first time. Even though you know he must have sung that song thousands of times. And it never seemed... And that's what sort of Ferguson is at United. In other words, it doesn't really matter how they get the success, whether it's young players foreign players, whether they score a load of goals, concede a load of goals, or whether they're tight at the back and they just edge the title through, you know, keep, you know, through squeaky bum time. And it's just, the consistency of it is win. As long as you win, people will be happy with that, and as long as you play with that, if you have that same intensity as Bruce Springsteen, that same consistency, regardless of what the album is like, it will still be Bruce Springsteen, people will still love it, and people will understand, and it will be sort of popular to a huge amount of people whereby sort of what's happened with Wenger is it's more classical music in other words you have to understand the constraints of him and the power that he has and and in the end it's it's so much harder for the regular fan because in the end the regular fan isn't particularly that interested in the fact that he is manager GM owner they just want Arsenal Football Club to be successful that's not too much to ask considering that the price of the season ticket hold, the season tickets, which he's never really mentioned. Now, for, for all of the kind of, you know, the players, this sort of, um, oh, what was it? What's the role? They, in the in Parliament, you have Father of the House, the, the longest serving MP, who's supposed to play this kind of titular sort of role. And he sort of plays that in football, but it's a bit sanctimonious because he's the one that, you know, refuses to spend the money. He's the one that allows the, you know, extremely high season ticket holders prices and so as a result it's like watching classical it's like watching a classical musical tragedy dealing with Wenger because it's all peaks and troughs and in the end it's almost impenetrable in other words it has to be done his way in the end Arsenal Football Club is you know it's Arsene is Arsenal and Arsenal is Arsene and it's not it was a football club before he turned up it was successful. It had its moments. It had its ups and downs. And it had its own soul and place in English football. And it will have one after Wenger. But at the moment, you just can't really see the end. It has to be bad at this point because he doesn't seemingly want to ever give up this power. No matter how positive, no matter how great his overall A grade is, it's an A grade that he's giving himself. And... The football club will always be its fans. It can't just be one person. You cannot be 
Arsenal Wenger's. It has to be Arsenal FC. You know, it will be there before you and it will be there after you. 